Sourdough no doubt makes the top five list of foods popularly associated with Alaska. It's enjoyed something of a resurgence in America over the last 25 years, going from just one of the standard flavors of diner toast to the central ingredient in good bread and bakeries everywhere. Today, we sit down with Harrison McHenry of Fresh Catch Cafe, who spends his winters baking bread for a chat about sourdough. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. Sourdough is a marriage of two organisms, yeast and lactic acid bacteria. The yeast eat the sugars in flour and produce carbon dioxide and alcohol. The bacteria eat the sugars in flour and produce lactic acid. They are greedy, stupid creatures, however. Left to their own devices, the yeast will produce so much alcohol that they die, and the bacteria will produce so much lactic acid that they also die. Then microbes better adapted to these hellish conditions move in, and what was a healthy, useful bowl of starter changes into a slimy, foul-smelling mess. Fortunately, humans, whose powerful brains ensure that we can foresee these kinds of problems before they occur, are able to regulate the sourdough to ensure that it does not destroy itself. There is much made among some sourdough enthusiasts about the great age of their starter. Some people are able to recite pedigree with almost the same devotion as a lover of purebred dogs. Such and such a person brought this sourdough up from the lower 48 in 1889 and gave it to so-and-so who gave it to what's-his-name who gave it to me. This is intended to suggest that anyone whose sourdough arrived after that date is destined to make inferior bread. And while it is commendable to keep something alive and thriving for a long time, the reality is, past a few days, the age of a sourdough doesn't really matter. A sourdough is going to change over time. The strains and species of yeast and bacteria it started with will be the ones local to the area in which it began, and as it moves around the world and the world moves around it, the dominant strains of its microbial citizens evolve. The ratio of liquid to flour in the starter changes things. Different flours carry different microbes. The bread might be a bit tangier in winter and a little creamier in the summer. Culture is an appropriate name for a sourdough starter as new strains constantly displace old ones, and yet somehow the whole thing keeps chugging along, doing what it does. As long as you don't do anything to it that kills it outright, like stop feeding it or spike it with bleach, it's going to carry on being useful for as long as humans exist. So don't be ashamed when your friend makes fun of your brand new starter and recites the history of theirs like a list of begats from the book of numbers. Just invite them over. Offer them a slice of bread and a look at your inferior starter. Let them poke it and prod it and tell you all the things you are doing wrong. When they return home, it's possible that some of the microbes from your starter will make the leap into theirs. Maybe they'll outcompete the existing microfauna. Maybe they won't. But as long as you both end up with good bread, who cares? It's a brutal disease, which is why, which is why we, we are here at KBBI instead of at your amazing test kitchen that I was supposed to go out and check out earlier this week before strep hit. I'm here with uh, Harrison McHenry, the owner-operator of Fresh Catch Cafe, who, which runs in the summers and then in the winters he farts around his house and bakes. And he's, he's here to talk to me today about sourdough. So when, did you, like, when, did, when were you like, I want to learn how to do this? Mm, I think it was out of embarrassment. I had conned myself into thinking that I could run a pizza kitchen at Alice's Pizza. And I was a great chef, but baking was my weakness. And, of course, the main function of pizza was to bake. And that was what helped me decide to go to culinary school and round off my, my set of skills I needed to bake. And 
I baked really bad pizza. <laughs> I, there's no way of getting around it. Like I, I was good enough to fake the funk, but I myself knew that the pizza wasn't up to my standards. I didn't have too many complaints, but I knew in my heart that this it was time to fix this. I needed to remedy this. So I enrolled in a culinary school in Ireland, and this school was really into sourdoughs. And I think the best part about this is I got to learn how to cook on a 700-year-old wood-fired oven. Oh, nice. We milled our own grain. We went through the whole procedure um, from the field to a finished product. And I ended up helping the master baker there write a book and start a television program. So I got a real hands-on experience because it was very obvious to the, the master chef that I had had enough cooking experience and she sat me down and asked me she said why are you here because she knew i could cut an onion i was the only kid in school on the first day who didn't have band-aids all over my fingers <laughs> and my knife kit wasn't brand new it was used and so she was very curious and i said well i need to learn how to bake and so she just shoved me to the master baker and i was his apprentice and i really got a one-on-one -on -one, um experience with him yeah you know getting up at 5 30 in the morning when everybody's snoozing walking the the dark country roads of ireland to go stoke a 700 year old <laughs> wood stove that they, they had bought from an italian village in italy you know it was such a coveted thing to the village that they had insisted contractually that when they purchased this that 18 of the the builders who deconstructed it had to fly over and construct it in the school. Oh, wow. So serious business. How and big was this thing? Like that? It was a behemoth. It's, <laughs> I mean, you could fit um, 15 12-inch pizzas in there. Wow. And that was their prime. It was designed around a cafe uh, at lunch, and we got to use it in the morning to bake the breads when it was at a lower temperature. I got you. 350, 450 degrees before it got going up to about 1,000 degrees. Wow. I got to learn on that. And that, to me, I think when you start with real raw, basic, stripped down without all the fancy gizmos and the, the, the technology, it gives you a good base, right. a good start. And that's where I, I really fell in love with sourdough because it was – I'm a history buff by heart. And, you know, these are the first breads that we had right. 10,000 years ago. And we decided to get out of the trees and start farming. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody left out a bowl of porridge overnight. And the next day they were like, wait a minute. Right. Something's happening here. Well, you know, you can't waste. You got to eat it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I say, I was hoping that we'd be actually in your kitchen. So, I, so because I apologize, that's okay. It's totally fine. But I want, I do want you to sort of describe your kitchen because one thing that I found, you know, I've I got a little experience baking bread in commercial um, situations, and I find that the physical layout of the space and the equipment that you have can make things dramatically easier. Oh, you can say that with all cooking. Unbelievably difficult. Yeah, you know? you know, you don't want the marathon kitchen where you're running over here for this, and then the next thing you know you need is over on the other side of the kitchen. Any kitchen, whether it's baking or online, is it should be ran like a boat. It's Everything true. that is necessary, like say I, all my flowers are in one area, all my bannetons are in one area, all my pots are in one area. So I can develop what's called muscle memory. And I can just reach over, I can grab that every single time, and I know where it is, and it goes back to where it is every single time. But my layout in my kitchen is the hearth or the oven is central. And on either sides of that, I like to have countertops. Wooden on one side and granite on the other. Of uh, Tables or built-in counters works fine. Now, I'm in transition because I'm I'm upping my game. What I was baking with was a little smaller, but I like everything kind of crammed together on the outer edges, and then I like leaving that whole field of the benches open. Bread is messy. Flour is yeah. messy. And what kind of oven are you using right now? Right now, I'm using an Electrolux, and it's a hybrid of uh, electric oven, and it's um, propane uh, stovetop. I hunted this down for years because I really think for sautéing, I like propane. I like the heat. But for right. ovens, I like electricity because the way they cycle in their heat, um, electric can hold heat a lot better. And Electrolux in particular, the walls of the 
the oven are very well insulated. So you're using a commercial range as opposed to like a dedicated oven. That's right. Okay. Yeah. All of the equipment at my house has to be commercial because my intent is to replicate this at the restaurant. Right. So I spend the winters in my test kitchen. All of my recipes, whether they're dessert or savory or breads, are initially started at my house. And they're just a little kernel. And, you know, there's a lot of mistakes to be gone through and hammered out. Most of the time, it's quite a bit of fun. And a lot of times, I want to pull my hair out, <laughs> especially when you're dealing with something like sourdough. So hold that thought, because I actually do want to talk about how you incorporate a sourdough into a commercial restaurant situation. When, once we get into talking about the nuts and bolts of bread, does your oven have steam injection with it? Or do you have to, do I, you have to rig that up? I have to rig that. Okay. Now, the steam injection ovens, you're getting into... Well, first, let's talk about why we need steam. Okay. The purpose of steam is to accelerate what's called oven spring. So initially when that bread hits the oven, you want it to pop up and that's where you're going to get the rise. But also steam, you want to gelatinize the, the top of the loaf. So you don't want the loaf to cook the outer crust to cook too terribly much because you want the, the, the crumb and the crust to kind of cook at the same same time. If you don't have steam, you're going to put your, your bread in a very hot oven. You're going to get some pretty good oven spring, but then the, the exterior of your bread or the crust is just going to be rock hard. And so the steam kind of gelatinizes that yeah. and softens it and allows the... Um, the crumb to catch up with the crust. And is your oven, is it a convection oven as well? Or? It is convection. Um, convection circulates the heat. It's more of an even heat, um, especially, uh, again, with the, the way the ovens cycle. Uh -huh. That fan just circulates that heat, and it keeps it a very consistent heat. And also, the my style of bread that I do um, is more European, and a hotter oven is needed. And okay. convection goes about 50 degrees higher than uh, conventional. I, if I'm using are using bicarbonate of soda or baking powder, I will use a conventional oven with those uh, leavening agents. Oh, interesting. I so think, for like a quick bread, you find that? Yeah, quick breads, cakes. Um, I find that uh, a conventional oven is uh, is way superior to the convection. Well, leavening agents is a good, uh, one day we'll, we will talk about, we'll do a whole show on like baking powder and quick breads, but leavening agents is a good transition to the actual meat of sort of what we're getting at here, which, right. is, which is sourdough, which is obviously, you know, a union between yeast and bacteria. Yeah, I call myself a microbrancher. You start to learn a lot about the, the little bugs around you. You will see um, if, if you do decide to go down the, the road of sourdough of how closely related brewing and sourdough is. Yeah. You're fermenting grains. Right. And it's, it's a lot of the same um, microbes, a lot of the same bacteria, a lot of the same yeast. So do you uh, tell me about your starter. Did you, did you start your starter yourself? Did you get it from somewhere else? Do you I, have multiple starters? I have multiple starters. I have my wife. I feel sorry for Heather. <laughs> uh, we were, as we were moving the new refrigerator in uh, yesterday, she was like, what do I do with these bowls of goo? <laughs> and I, and it took me a minute and they are bowls of goo to her, but yeah, these are my starters. So I like to have three basic starters. I like just a white, white bread. Cause that's what my son eats. And okay. I do a rye and then I do a whole wheat starter. Okay. And those are my three go-tos that I have. I really, uh, I like the difference in all of them. Do you maintain them all at different hydration levels? Because in my understanding of sourdough, typically what people will say is that if you have more flour than water, your sourdough tends to be a little yeast heavier. And if you have more water than flour, it tends to be a little more uh, bacteria, lactic acid heavy. Do yeah. You, do you find, do you maintain yes, them all? Yes, I do. Okay. So, so the white bread I do what's called, I use baker's percentages. So I do what's called 100% hydration. That And it simply means that I use the same amount of water and the same amount of flour when I uh, refresh my starter. Right. And that's and, for the white bread. And, and for baker's, let's just, let me just refresh uh, what baker's percentages means. It means that 100% is the amount of flour in the recipe, no matter what the recipe is. And everything else is expressed as a percentage of that flour. So if you have 100% hyd uh, hydration, it means that you have 100% of the water that is in the flour. If you have 60% hydration, you're using 60% as much flour or as much water as you are flour. So 
the basic rundown there. Anyway, continue. Yeah, and that, and that will definitely have. I mean, that took me in culinary school a little bit to get used <laughs> to the to transition to the metric system. But once you once you use that, you'll find it. Especially with sourdough, your your consistency level will reward you twofold. So with the white bread. I when you do sourdough, you're producing lactobacilli, and lactobacilli produces uh, two types of acid. I can get acidic acid, or I can get lactic acid. So if I want a mild sourdough, I can make bread taste like bread, and you won't really taste the tang with, and it'll be a sourdough starter. And that's because I'm encouraging the lactic acid. I find like the the more the more water I have in a a starter, the the more I can progress the lactic acid and. If I make my starters like I do with my rye and my my whole wheat, if I do less water and a lower temperature of water too, I can encourage acidic acid, and that's what's going to give me that tang. That and that's uh, derived from the the alcohols that the the yeast are producing. Well, yeah, the the yeast actually feed off of the simple sugars, and the uh, lactobacilli will feed off of the complex sugars. They they work in conjunction. It's it's a funny thing how symbiotic it is, but you can change the temperature of your water by 10 degrees and then you're going to encourage a whole different taste or you can add less water and it's a um, once you realize how to manage that you can you can create whatever you want for me in particular i don't like a real tangy sourdough it's it's a little over the top for my palate but i know a lot of people do and so that's why with especially with the rye cuz rye and whole wheat has a lot more microbes in it which the bacteria feeds off, and that will also create a lot more tang. And so what I like to do is I call putting the rye and the whole wheat starters on a little bit of a a water shortage. (laughs) What it does is it encourages, with a stiff starter, it encourages them to produce more acidic acid. And I find that with that acidic acid and using colder water and retarding my final proof in the oven that I can get a really, I can, I can get you to cringe almost tang. <laughs> Vinegar bread. I, I pushed it to the <laughs> limits to where, to where, uh, yeah, it was almost inedible. Probably kept for a long time though. Yeah. You know, sourdough's funny like that. It, it will keep for two to three weeks. Yeah. So describe your process for, for beginning a new starter then. Cause I've never found it that difficult, you know, more I, or less if you mix some flour and some water and you put it together and you feed it every, you know, X amount of days, then, you know, or X amount of hours, then you get something. I've seen people, you know, they're like, oh, you got to use raisin water. You got to use potato sure. water. And like, sure. This is the very first hurdle, intimidation hurdle that people have to get over with sourdough is the starter. Once they get over this, they can give themselves a good chuckle because it is sincerely the easiest <laughs> part of the project. And it's also the most dangerous because it takes your hand and says, come with me right. down this road, which, you know, can be windy and curvy. But what I do is I simply take a good, strong flour, uh, high protein, uh, hard winter wheat. I, I generally like to use and I like around 14% protein and I add water around 75 degrees. I mix it and I cover it. And I will start off with 100% hydration. 250 milliliters of water or 250 grams of water and 250 grams of flour. And then I mix it and then I cover it and that's it. And I let it sit for seven days. And once it starts bubbling, you know that you have captured natural yeast and bacteria that are in your environment. Right. Because as you know, there's yeast and bacteria everywhere. That's on our skin. It's in the air. And one fascinating thing about these yeast and bacteria is they they colonize. And so the more baking you do at your house, the more brewing you do at your house, the more active you are with these. They colonize. They make themselves stronger. So like for me, I am a avid brewer and I'm an avid baker. So I can start a sourdough starter in like two days. <laughs> I had a friend, she had a story about making sourdough. She used to do it on a board. And she never cleaned the board, of course. After a while, she didn't even have to use sourdough starter. She could just mix some water and flour on, on her board. board and leave it overnight. <laughs> and so, you know. So the, so the lesson is if, if you really want to get your starter going, find a friend of yours who's a, who's a frequent baker and have them come stick their finger in your, right. in your, uh, in your starter. Yeah, absolutely. Like put, their, put, their, put their apron, the corner of their apron in there or something. Like when I see bubbles, I activate it. I will take half of its body weight and I will toss it 
and then I will feed it from there. And I will do that every single day until I can get the starter to um, rise as quick as I want it. And I right. like a commercial rise. Like I want my breads to be able to rise in four to six hours. Right. Which is fairly quick for sourdough. Yeah, it is. And that's something that that's something that actually took me a long time to learn was that you do have to get rid of a, consi- a considerable amount of the old stuff. Yeah, you know, I would when I was I'm first kind of f- when I was first getting into it, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd be like, oh, I guess I got to keep a lot of the old stuff because that'll make it better somehow. But right. really, that's just a huge amount of like the the alcohols and the acids. Yeah, the ethanol. That, yeah, yeah, that yeah. kill you know insufficient insufficient uh, concentration. They kill the yeast. And the bacteria. Yep. So that was kind of a big thing for me was learning. I got to get rid of a lot of this stuff and start right. with a little bit of the the culture and then a lot of new food. And then all of a sudden it was like, wait, oh, now it's now it's working. I think that's I think that's in our nature in Alaska. We don't want to throw away stuff. Yeah. And but I'll tell you what, it does open another window of creativity to how do I use this? Because do you really throw it away? Because they're Seriously, lovely pancakes. I know. I did. I did learn how to make sourdough pancakes that really? way, and then I Pizza understood. Pizza dough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, you can get really creative. I I can't toss it. Yeah, it's tough to do. So so describe then um, before we get into the actual bread making with the starter. Let's um let's finish because one of the hard things to do is okay. So now you've got this starter. Now how do you right. maintain this thing? So what's your what's your procedure, especially because, you know, a lot of people aren't like you're baking pretty much constantly, you know, right. but if you're not, you know, maybe you only have really time to do it on the weekends or, you know, once every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. How do you keep that starter going? Yeah, this is a very good subject because people have went through all this trouble. They've they've created a starter. They've now got this living culture and they're responsible for it. You know, it's it's, a it's, pet. it's do or die. Yeah. It's, you know, it's your little buddy. It's however you want, name it, you know, <laughs> but, um, so now you're in charge. And one thing you have to decide right off is what do you want? What, what avenue am I going to go down? Do I just like white bread? Do I want to do, um, sprouted whole wheat, you know? And so <clears throat> once you've decided what you do, what you want to do and what avenue you're going to go down, you from there can step and take a step in um, creating what what I call your true mother, because you know you've created a starter, you're at a blank slate. And now we can go whatever direction. So if I wanted to do whole wheats and sprouted wheats, then I would start feeding my starter a little bit of whole wheat. If I want to do white bread, of course I'd do that. But from there, what I do is I feed the starter. And and then I'll bake something, and of course I got to refresh it. And if I'm not going to use it, I put it right in the fridge. What that does is it retards the fermentation process. Do you do it right after you feed it, or do you wait a little bit? I do it right after I feed it because I mean you can let it sit on the counter, and it's not going to stop the fermentation process to put it right in the fridge. What you're doing by putting it in the fridge too is if you like really sour sourdough, that cold, slow, drawn out fermentation is going to help the acetic acid. If you don't like acetic acid, but you need to put your starter away, let it sit out for a couple hours and then put it in. You're going to get in this game though, if you don't want too much acetic acid is taking it out, putting it back in, taking it out because you want the lactic acid to be more prevalent. And so if it, if it has been in the fridge for a while and you don't want it to be so acidic or so acetic acidic, you, you, you're going to have to give it a couple days of yeah you're gonna have to refresh it or play the game because you can smell it when you take it out and it's got this distinct whiny fermented and it may even have a little bit of uh, black liquor on top which is the ethanol dump that off if you don't want the sour i know a lot of people that mix that right back in because they like that tang tang yeah yeah but yeah you're gonna have to refresh it so cut the body weight in half do your your uh, preferred uh, feedings uh, for a couple of days until and you will get a nose for it. You'll yeah. be able to smell it when the when the the acid of your choice is prevalent. So, in your experience, how long can you keep it in the fridge between feedings in there? Like, how long will it stay? I've had them in there for two years. Oh, that long? Yeah, just cover them really well. Make sure there's you know an oxygen free zone. Huh. What it's what's going to happen is you'll see it is it'll start drying out. You're going to have to peel the cap off. It only takes a teaspoon of this stuff to preserve it. I tried one time. I did. I, dr- I dried some out on a sheet pan. Yeah. And uh, in a real thin layer. And then I just sort of crumbled it up and stuck it in a plastic bag. It's It was sort of difficult to tell at the end because, you know, when I when I went to refresh it, 
it seemed like it refreshed quicker, you know, like when I started it with just salt or and water. Or did you a little inoculate new microbes? Right. And so I really don't know if the drying, you know, if I was really getting that sure. particular starter or if it was just because I do bake a lot in my kitchen. So I've got, you know, all that yeah. stuff floating around. So I really don't know if it worked. I've heard people say it does. But, you know, at this point, I'm going to call that one a mystery of science. I've always just had an excess so I've never had to dry it out. I like I like that you're experimenting uh, because I, I've always been curious. I read a, a long time ago, James Beard, he did all these yeasts and he was just stupefied by people going to the store and buying these, you know, this commercial um, yeast. And when you could use just about anything to yeah. create yeast. He was into drying it quite a bit, but he rolled his into cornmeal, huh. which I found fascinating. Yeah, to preserve it. Well, then I thought about it afterwards, you know, because a lot of times, particularly in Alaska, you know, you can go to a lot of the tourist shops and they'll they'll sell you the little plastic bag yeah. of dried sourdough. I was like, man, maybe I should just, you know, make this a little industry. Here. Absolutely. <laughs> Charge people five bucks for a little bag of crumbled up ex-sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> it would fly off the shelf. <laughs> okay, so... I think we've I think we've adequately covered the basics of starters, and there really isn't. I mean, people put so much mystique around them, but they put really, water and flour together, let it sit for seven days until it bubbles. There you go. Yeah. So now, what do we do with it? Now I want to make bread. Right. So we've 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 we're to a point where we've made our starter, and now and we've refreshed it enough days, which means cut the body weight in half, add equal parts flour and water. We've done that for three or four more days. So we can get the yeast uh, attenuated to a point to where we li- like, I like a very quick response. I like, I like a commercial response. I want this st- response, meaning I want this stuff to rise. And, and like I said, four to six hours is quick for a sourdough. Right. So we've got the yeast to a point that we like the response time. So what we're going to do is it's refreshed. And now we're going to make bread. What I like to do is I get out my scale. I put my mixing bowl on the scale and then I Wait, I just I just want you to say that again for the benefit of the people who who give me a lot of grief about recommending scales. You you, you put your bowl on what? <laughs> on a scale. I am a student of consistency. <clears throat> And I've had too many flat tire loaves and failures <laughs> to not use a scale anymore. Once you start using a scale, you just will never go back. Yeah. And so I put the scale or the, the mixing bowl on the scale, and I start off with my water. And if I'm going to do um, a loaf that I'm trying to produce the same day, I'm not going to retire in the refrigerator, my water temperature is 80 to 85 degrees okay. because I want a really high temperature. And I really want to. I want this to be active. I want so I measure out the water, um, and then from there I add flour, and I don't add all of it. I add uh, about ninety percent of it, okay. and I'll mix it and thoroughly, and it, and then I'll shut the uh, mixer off, and I'll just cover the the bowl, and I'll let it sit for an hour. Okay. And this is a process the Germans call autolyse, and basically what you're doing is you're rehydrating the flour. I don't have any salt. I don't have any leavening agent. I have no extra additives or ingredients. Um, I just have flour and water, and I'm letting that rest. And this is one of the most underestimated um, steps in baking any bread. I don't care if you're using uh, commercial Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I don't care if you're using sourdough. You must do auto lease because this allows a dehydrated, you know, flour is dehydrated and it needs the hydration. And that's another reason I don't add all the water at this point is because I want to, it's going to, it's going to stiffen up and I'm going to have to add a, the last little bit of the water too, to loosen it as I'm mixing it. Yeah. doesn't it, it encourages, there's certain enzymatic actions that happen yeah, that absolutely. won't really happen in the presence of salt and yeast. That is correct. And so the, the enzymatic processes, you know, these enzymes, they're converting starches into sugars. Right. They're creating fructose, glucose, maltose, and this is all the stuff the bacteria and the yeast in conjunction are going to live. This is their food. Right. And this is also um, what's going to help your bread rise. Yes. The byproduct is carbon and uh, ethanol. Carbon dioxide, sorry. And ethanol. And the carbon dioxide is what gives us those beautiful bubbles. You're tidying up the house before the guests come over. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I want this, I want my living little city 
to have enough food to, you know, to perform and do its job. So you auto lease for an hour. I do. And I know a lot of people that will auto lease for four hours. Oh, wow. 12 hours. And they say the longer you can auto lease, the better off you are. And I've seen, I've, the proof is in the pudding. It's true. You can auto lease as little as 15 minutes and you're going to see improvement in your bread. What specific improvements do you notice between a bread that hasn't been auto lease and one that one that has i see better crumb better crust and i also see that oven spring i was talking about when you initially put you're gonna get a taller bread and it's just because the yeast have much more food to eat basically yeah you're providing more food and not only that is you're hydrating this flour it sits in the mixer for its for an hour for its time and now i allow an hour because of my schedule like i know my starter too right and this is a very intimate thing getting to know your starter it's it's a living thing it's not just gonna you know you're not gonna be like hey do this and it's gonna respond you know you have to kind of work with it and Well, I think I think every 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 person who's made sourdough bread has had that experience of like doing the recipe, following all the steps correctly, <laughs> you know, and, and the everything will is listen. right. And it's like, what is this thing? Right. You, know, and you get this little hard hockey puck, or you know, yeah. you get this giant blown out thing with big gaps everywhere. And yeah, for sure. Or you're you know you're waiting for this thing to bulk proof, and it's. <laughs> and it's not doing anything. And then you come back two hours later and it's exploding. Yeah. You're like, what is going on here? But um, that's about training your starter, learning it, and and what works for you. It's an individual thing, but for sure. But so now we're at a point where we're at we're done with auto lease. And at this point, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna add the rest of the water. I use diastatic barley, okay. uh, a malted barley powder. And so I'll add the the malted barley powder. Basically, and the same stuff you can get at a brew shop, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly the same stuff, and it's maltose, malto trios. Like it's, I'm providing a little more food because I want. This is going to be a really long fermentation, and I want um, food throughout this long fermentation. I don't want these guys to starve, right? Because once they stop eating they start to die off like you're, you're they're done i want them to to be happy and full and so i've i've added i've added the rest of my water i've added my um malted barley and then i'm gonna weigh out my starter and then i'll mix all that i don't go crazy with the mixer i literally takes me 30 seconds per mix like with the autolys 30 seconds done with this 30, i'm just incorporating this stuff i'm not whipping it up i'm not like cranking it on high and not looking for like a window pane or any of that stuff no yeah and that's another thing because that it's a different style of bread yeah you know commercial yeast bread you know anybody that's had experience making that like the mixing is such a critical part of it you know you've got to mix it for long enough to properly develop the gluten right and get everything done at a high enough speed you got to make the window pane and you know everything's got to be done in the mix but for sourdoughs so much of it actually happens while the bread's just sitting there I, and I have also, I kind of have to disagree with that. I have found with commercial breads, the less mixing I do now, even with commercial yeast, I the same process that I'm doing now, you're going to find a far superior product. Because gluten develops, you know, it's not just a matter of manipulating the dough. It also will naturally develop over time. It will. And, um, and stretching. And stretching. And that's what we're probably about to get to is stretching right. and folding because that's sort of... That's kind of replaced heavily kneading in a lot of like modern bread recipes. And I I see the necessity commercially um, because I live on both sides of the plane here of kneading a mixer. And a lot of people are not afforded the time it takes to ferment. It's a um, marathon, you know, to be able to ferment bread for 12 hours. Yeah. 16 hours too. And the schedule can be a little bit unforgiving too. You know, it is when it's very unforgiving. When it's ready to go, it's ready to go. And it That's doesn't matter right. what, you, what else and, you're and doing. And the mixer, you can really time it out to your schedule if you have an exacting schedule. I don't really use the mixer too much at my house. I, I use it to incorporate. So when I'm done, uh, we're at a point where everything's incorporated except for the kosher salt or the sea salt, which it depends on what kind of bread I'm making. But I... Don't add that until after 30 minutes. So I've mixed everything and I'm letting it rest in its uh, proofing container for the first fermentation. And I will set a timer for 30 minutes. And after that 30 minutes, I'll sprinkle the salt over and then I'll do what's called a letter fold. I just take 
one corner of the bread, I fold it into the center, I rotate it, take another quarter of the bread, fold it into the center, rotate it, and you know, four times. And basically, I'm gonna do this five times every 30 minutes. So let me rephrase that. I'm gonna do this a total of five times, and I'm gonna do it in 30 minute intervals. Okay. So every 30 minutes, I'm full doing a letter fold on this thing in its bulk fermentation container. And what I'm doing is incorporating that salt slowly with every fold. And I'm also stretching the gluten strands. Right. You know, I'm, I'm helping form that strong gluten structure, which so many years um, bakers have relied on with their mixer. Right. You know, and you think about how many mixers have been burned out over the years. And I do those letter folds. After uh, five letter folds, it's time to finish the bulk fermentation by just covering it and leaving it alone until it's doubled in bulk. And is the logic behind not using the salt right off the bat to give the yeast basically a little bit of a head start without the inhibiting effects of the salt, or is there some other reason that you do that? I I think it retards the um, hydration process of the the absorption of okay. the water to the to the flour. I don't have any strong evidence to support that. I just all of the um, the master bakers and all of the resources that I use, they do this. So we, we I, are, I, for years, I thought it was the that it would kill the yeast. Yeah, and I've put salt directly on the yeast, and, it, and it's and it's fine, and it's fine. <laughs> so now we're what two and a half hours later. You've you folded folded and stretched five times. And now what? Now what happens? Now we're doing the rest of the the bulk fermentation, and we are just going to let the bread sit, and we're going to let it double in size. What temperature do you like to bulk ferment? I at? like seventy five to eighty degrees. Do you have I'll, a proofing cabinet at home, or do you just kind of have a spot that's about? I right? I have a proofing cabinet, um, but I don't use it that much in the winter because I have a wood stove. Oh, okay. And holy smokes. <laughs> And for those of you that might not know, a proofing cabinet is basically a big box that's temperature and humidity controlled, and they're very handy. Bread's one of those things that if you can keep everything consistent, then in theory, every time it's the same. It in is. practice. <laughs> it is. Not necessarily, but. And a, a, a key component of that is steam. So when I'm proofing my bread at home, I usually have two or three soups on the wood stove, but I also have a big pot of water that's ready to go and it's proofing near the and don't do it near drafts right like if you're near a doorway that's going open and shut all the time just stick in a warm part of the um, house the way i have mine set up it is it only takes like an hour and a half to two hours for the bulk fermentation to finish we're at a point where the Dough has doubled in size, and what I'm going to do now is I'm going to measure it, and what we're going to do is I'm going to shape the dough. And um, initially, I like to, when I handle sourdough, I'll weigh it, and then I'll just let it sit on the bench. If you feel your dough starting to tighten or you can't work with it, you need to just step away. So many people force dough, and you'll see it. You'll see it rip. At that point, you need to stop. It's hard, but cover it back up and let it sit. I like to rest my dough every time I handle it, at least for 15 minutes. So, And then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to shape it. If I'm going to do a boule, I'm going to round it off. You know, If I'm going to do batards or baguettes, I'm going to get it more of a cylindrical type of shape. Again, I'm going to let it sit for 15 minutes right. once I get that basic. And then I'll go back, and I'll tighten it up put a rice flour on it and then put it in my banatins and cover it and powder the bottoms and let it sit until it um, raises to the top of the banatins. And if you're wondering what those are, they're little wooden baskets that you form dough in. Yeah. And I like banatins. Um, you can use a, you can use a bowl. You can use, I've seen people use old Folgers coffee cans. Yeah. Um, and bake right in them, for that matter. Yeah, uh, I've seen that, especially with like brown breads. Brown breads, like yeah. yeah, yeah. The 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 Boston brown breads, yeah. and yeah, those uh, molasses style. Although, if you are going to use one of those, you really want to make sure it's it's really well uh, floured. And sometimes, sometimes you know, like a stainless steel bowl, it might even be a good idea to grease it because yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> the I, nice thing about bannetons, the reason that people use them is because once they get well seasoned enough with plenty of flour, it 
dough tends not to stick. And I hi highly suggest using rice flour. Do you? Yeah. Rice flour. Because it doesn't really hydrate the same way that it doesn't. regular flour. Right. That's why people use it, right? Yes. And it's a lot less, well, I guess that's the hydration level, but it's it, it creates a lot less sticking to the banneton. Yeah. There's nothing worse <laughs> than going through six hours to 12 hours of making sourdough and then you're... Going to put it uh, either on your your baking stone or which I, I use Dutch ovens most of the time, in in into your uh, baking surface and having it stick to the banneton and flatten right in front of your eyes. Yeah, it's the most it's deflating brutal. feeling in the world. It is. It is. So you learn to to cover your butt and uh, heavy rice flour works for that. Another little trick that I picked up from Chad Robertson of Tartine Bakery is he likes to take seeds, quinoa, bran flakes, mm -hmm. sesame seeds, both black and white. And before you put it in the banneton, you'll roll the smooth surface of your bread and roll it in the seeds and then put it in your banneton. And so as it proofs, you're getting this nice little crunch exterior going. So once it's in the banneton's, it's it's off for its final proof. I cover it uh, 75 to 80 degrees and just monitor it. It's once it's filled and risen to the the level that I like, it's time to bake. And you mentioned Dutch ovens, so yeah, let's... we're we're getting into that. There, the whole reason behind a Dutch oven is we had we had brought up steam and a heavy bottomed pan like uh, a Dutch oven gives us a good crust on the bottom, like a hearthwood. But that heavy lid does something even more important. And that's going to trap in the steam because there's a there's a lot of moisture in this bread, especially the breads that I do. They're a high hydration level. You know, I'm I'm pushing 85 to 90 percent hydration levels on a lot of my breads, and so there's a lot of moisture. And when uh, that bread hits this 500 degree oven, it's releasing a lot of that moisture, and that lid traps it in. You take the lid off halfway through the baking so you can brown the top, but you know that's a real cheap and sneaky way to to inject steam into your bread. Otherwise, what I have to do is I have to get a big um, baking tin and I line it with baking rocks and and I it's I preheat it with the oven and then I'll inject it with uh, water, yeah. you know, this explosion. Right. Uh, have you done that? Or, yeah, the, gar I or usually, the garden hose? <laughs> <laughs> I usually have a, a, typically my, my method is to put a cast iron skillet in the in the bottom. Right. And then you, and preheat it along with the oven and then you pull it out and you pour in hot water and it immediately, you know, Yeah, the only re the only reason I don't use cast iron and I did was because um, you have to dedicate one to that because you will lose that seasoning off that cast. Well, iron. not if it's an enameled cast iron. Yeah, well, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I have uh, Heather's grandma's 100-year-old cast iron and I don't dare yeah. Mess with that. No, we have we have a bunch of we have quite a bit of old enamel enameled cast nice. iron that well, I bake in enameled cast iron, uh the Lake Rosés, but I have a big sturdy roasting tin. It's like I said, I've tried everything. I bought yeah. like little steam injectors. That I've heard of people shooting spray bottles of water. In yeah, there. yeah, yeah. I've done it. I, I tell you, I've done everything underneath the sun to get that. A whole, at least most home ovens and and a lot of commercial ovens too, they're vented. You know, whereas yeah. like a real proper like a bakery steam injected oven, they they will inject steam into an unvented oven for a specified period of time, right? And then they'll vent it. So the steam just stays in there, but with a home oven, and you can see it, you know, when you when you do it, oh, you can it's see pouring the steam out all the coming out of all the vents yeah. and everything, you know. So you're at, you're not you have to use even more steam than you really need, right? And it's going to go away quicker than you really want it to. And what so, are you doing to those uh, those electric elements? Yeah, well, yeah. my I have a gas oven, so <laughs> fair enough. But you know, it's I like I think Dutch ovens are. Uh, superior if you do not have the steam injected deck ovens like they have in and I just don't have the extra 25 grand to yeah. throw at that nor is my <laughs> operation big enough to warrant it but yeah. I think the only th complaint I have about Dutch ovens is the scoring when you put the dough in you you, you tend to to get a little bit of marked from right. the hot cast because you, you have to preheat you the preheat oven. the cast iron right. yeah and mine's on the as soon as I get up in the morning to start my sourdough, my Dutch ovens go on my wood stove. And they're sitting there all day ready to receive because I don't want to put this dough in a cold environment. Right. You know, I want it to be, I want that oven spring. 
that's the only uh, complaint I have with uh, Dutch ovens is when you score the bread, it you can't get creative. And I and I find that it's um, I have to be really basic with my scoring. Right. Which well, it, to me, the scoring is the it's your signature. It's your it's your art, you know, of yeah. of the the loaf. So you brought up hydration a little bit ago, and I want to talk about that because that's that's another thing that there's a real big difference. You know, if you if you sort of cut your teeth on regular commercial bread, that tends to be relatively low, lower hydration, you know, it 62 does. to 66%, mm-hmm. you know, 70 at the, at the sort of top. So let's, let's talk yeah, a little bit about hydration and what that, what that does to the bread. So for a commercial bread, that's like 66, well, 66% is the classic for, for baguettes. That's the official baguette right. recipe is yeah. like, is that. Mm-hmm. So what does that, what does that mean related to the actual composition of the bread? Well, it's how much water you're putting into the flour. Like you said, we start off with a hundred percent flour in our baker's percentages. It's, it's about the bubbles, you know, how big you want the bubbles, how, how much you want your bread to rise. But also it's, for me, it's, it's, it's full hydration and which leads to good fermentation. You know, I feel the more, uh, the more water I'm able to add, the better I am to be able to hydrate it. Uh-huh. And, and, and with, like I said, which leads to a better and longer fermentation flour by nature, because it is dehydrated over time, especially when you're doing, you know, like a 12 hour uh, fermentation time, we'll just keep sucking it up. I mean, you, it will just keep getting stiffer and, it may seem unmanageable at first, but you know by the end of twelve hours you have a dough um, that is very workable, yeah, eighty five percent, and uh, very manageable. Because have you ever worked with a high hydration and you're you like your little kindergartner in a play doh project that's too sticky and gone awry? Yeah, you know it's it seems like an awful mess, but it's it's a, it's a timing thing. If I don't have the time, I use lower hydration, and I'm able to uh, manage it and push it out quicker. So do you, so you do you think that it's principally a, a time thing that it's less like necessarily like a bread structure and more of like I need to get this bread out in X amount of time? I think that has a lot to do with it because you, you you're not afforded the time to ferment it in a right. proper length of time. Most recipes using conventional yeast, I mean, you're basically looking to be done with the bread unless you're doing like a poolish or something like that. You're right. basically looking to be done with it and, you know, inside of six hours. Yeah, hopefully. You know, and that's pretty long. Yeah, that um, is for uh, uh, using commercial yeast. That's yeah, really long. Yeah. You know, four hours is even probably more accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, Water, like I said, it, it's aiding fermentation. And when, when I say aiding fermentation, I should probably elaborate a little on this. When you have sourdough, the cultures, they're they're eating the sugars and, you know, the, the, the carbohydrates, the complex carbohydrates, you know, the simple sugars here, they're, the, they're eating these long-chain and short-chain sugars, which is, you know, eating a lot, uh, which is the enzymes are converted to the starches. So what you're doing is you're making a bread that is very digestible. And I think water is a big part of that because it, it serves as a vehicle for the fermentation to to keep happening and to for the, the microbes to keep eating all these sugars fully. A, a big part I uh, problem I have with a lot of the breads these days is they don't ferment the breads long enough. And this sourdough, why I primarily started doing it was a lot of my friends, they, like, they have gluten, they, they're gluten intolerance or, you know, they're diabetic. And yeah. sourdough is very low on the glycemic index because of that high hydration and long fermentation of these breads. It's a very digestible bread and it's good for our guts. Right. And um, I think the hydration aids all of that along. I've seen it, you know, people that say they have a gluten intolerance and they eat my bread, they they give me big hugs because they can <laughs> eat bread again. Bread is it's been part of us. It is. It's mana. It's you know, it's it's what helped us become, you know, modern day society. Help nutrition. And so when we take that away, 
that inherent thing that we think belongs to us, it's it's a big deal to give it back. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about a little bit about your process for um, for converting. You know these recipes that you're building during the winter. You know where you can take your time and you don't have a whole lot going on, and it's pretty easy to you know. Oh, I can, you know I messed this one up, so let me tweak a little bit and do that. Yeah. To the summer when now you know you're open at ten thirty or eleven for lunch, and now you have a line of tickets, and you also have bread that needs to get put in the oven at some point. And, you know, maybe you have a couple hours in the afternoon where everything kind of chills out and you can get a little more prep done, but the bread needs to be attended to right now. And no. you've got, you know, a whole rail and there's waitresses yelling no, at you. And no, 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 <laughs> So how do you, how do no, you? None <laughs> of that happens. I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I've been in this industry too long. The bakers show up really early and they're pretty much out of the way by the time any of that stuff's happening. Yeah. So this, all this is behind the scenes. And it all depends on the baker. I've been lucky the past couple of years. The the gentleman I have now is very attentive and pays attention to detail and is capable. Yeah. And and it's not like I've you know a lot of people just it doesn't click for them. Right. And so you got to get the right person. But the way it transitions is not as uh, lengthy, and that's why I try to practice at home what I'm going to do at the restaurant. I don't dawdle around at at home um, when I'm getting close to a final product. I feel like I'm at work. I feel like there's pressure on that service is going to be coming up soon. Right. And if I don't have this bread right, then and that's the way I develop the recipes it, at my house. So ultimately, you know, at the beginning when you're like, oh, I want to try this bread, that might be pretty like chill. That's a, and, that's a rough draft. And lackadaisical. Yeah. But then towards the end, you're like, okay, now I'm going to I'm going to imagine that it's 430 in the morning. Right. And I just walked in. And I've got this dough that Absolutely. started yesterday and I'm pulling it out of the fridge. And now by, you know, 11 or whatever, it needs to not just be out, but it needs right. to be ready to serve. Right. So I, I write down the criteria. Okay. These, these are the hours I have to work with. Right. And if I can't make that work, then something needs to be changed. Yeah. And so I start going backwards, you know, like what can I cut out? Like, uh, does my auto lease really have to be an hour? Can it be 15 minutes? I just say myself 45 minutes. Right. And so you have to start walking back like that. And, yeah. you know, do I really need to fold it five times? Will it work if I fold it three times? You know? Yeah. I start um, bartering, or not bartering, but I start doing this mental battle with myself. I, I'm not very good at that. Like, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I like things my way. I have to really. Uh, I have to really find out what works, and it it's a lot harder than it sounds because I am a stubborn mule, right? And I don't like to give up that quality, and um, so I find, you know, I find what makes it work, and and you you have to lose stuff. There's just no getting around it commercially. That's just, especially with the the nature of the business in uh, Alaska, we have three months, right? And it's not like you're getting out of a year's worth of work. You're just fitting it in <laughs> to three months. Right. And so you you have to it's a challenge, but Yeah, and especially for some for something like you where you're not you're not a bakery, you're a restaurant. Right. So everything has to have, you know, it's gotta fit into a restaurant context. It does. Yeah. yeah. Especially for like my breads and stuff. I I like to have a bread that uh, everybody will enjoy. Right. And I had one one person say, it's like your bread, you know, you could add so much to this and so much to this. And, it, you know, you could add herbs and rosemary and make your bread so, so much better. And I, I, I said, but that type of bread isn't going to fit with every dish. Right. A basic white bread, I know, is, is, is a, a blank slate, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's a white canvas. And from there, I can build on top of it and layer flavors, but I can't. Have a, a breads with um, that are unique unto themselves, right? Because I just can't bake a thousand types of breads. Yeah. I have to do one that hits every single person or most. Yeah. I'm not going to hit everybody. Yeah, I'm came to that conclusion a long time ago. But <laughs> I can hit. I can hit high nineties. Yeah, no matter how good you do, there's always going to be somebody that hates it. And, and that's <laughs> and, and I'm finally okay with that. <laughs> it's it's a hard lesson. It's a hard lesson to learn for sure. Mm. For the uh, for let's let's sort of end on the for the beginning baker, you know, somebody that's just sort of getting into it. 
what uh what resources have you found now because i mean i would argue that right now is probably the best time to be a baker or a cook in probably the history of the world there just is because a lot it's of resources so easy to find information you know there is a resurgence especially with sourdough because of the the health benefits we had stated earlier you know it is it's becoming um it's becoming a fad but i, I love it because we had this type of bread you know 100 years ago yeah uh, i'm glad we're coming back to it but why why did it take so long it's hard to watch people say, oh, I don't eat bread because of gluten and knowing that it's full of glyphosate and that the bread was mishandled and so it's not digestible. There is a reason it's coming back, but I think to help people weed through the resources because there's a lot of people that think they know what they're talking about and certainly do not is uh, the most ripped off uh, form of sourdough is Chad Roberson, Tartine Bakery, his basic country loaf yeah. is by far a great starting point, and any baker worth their salt will will uh, agree. He's just he's really changed the dynamics of what sourdoughs become to America by enabling home bakers to do uh, artisanal style bread, yeah, and feel good about it, yeah, you know, and not have a lump of of coal or hockey pucks or, you know, hard pancakes. I've called them all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Shot them with shotguns, you know, because I'm angry. But Maggie Geyser's artisan baking is, uh, it's a little older. It's artisan baking across America, and it showcases um, different styles of, of breads and sourdoughs. But those are my two go-tos. And I think the Tartine Bread Book his country loaf, if you want to try sourdough and feel successful right off the bat, go to that. And then from there, if it does work for you, like delve out there further into uh, to the sourdough world. You know, it's a big diving board. Yeah. Jump in. Well, thanks for coming in and talking yeah. to me about sourdough. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad I can make it in today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we've been talking about healthy bacteria the whole time, you know. There's... <laughs> Lactobacillus is great, but Streptococcus is kind of a different animal. Yeah, avoid that one. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Today's guest was Harrison McHenry of Fresh Catch Cafe. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebane. This is the second episode of the winter 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.